we do thank you for the privilege, the joy of gathering to worship you together. Thank you for the ways you have already blessed. We pray you'd continue. Lord, I ask your forgiveness of my sins that you would help me to proclaim your word truthfully, boldly, clearly, and open all of our hearts to receive it. Use it to sanctify us as your people. Those that are not yet yours, we pray for your mercy and grace to draw them to saving faith. Lord, we pray your blessing on Pastor Scott and Gina and their travels and time with family and their new grandson and, and bless them in that. Lord, refresh them. And Father, we, we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. C.S. Lewis in his children's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Eustace, a rather mean, unpleasant boy, is very selfish, tried very hard to make things miserable for others. He slipped away from the group on a nearly, newly discovered island so that he could avoid work. He ended up in a dragon's cave, story there, but we don't have time for it, and fell asleep. When he awoke, he made a terrible discovery. Lewis writes, He had turned into a dragon while he was asleep. Sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. His first feeling was one of relief. There was nothing to be afraid of anymore. He was a terror himself. He could get even with Caspian and Edmund now. But the moment he thought this, he realized he didn't want to. He wanted to be friends. He wanted to get back among humans and talk and laugh and share things. He realized that he was a monster cut off from the whole human race. An appalling loneliness came over him. Later, a lion, the lion in the Narnia Chronicles, the, the figure that represents Christ in Lewis's stories, leads Eustace as a dragon to a well and told him that before he could get in and bathe, he had to undress. Eustace realized dragons must be able to cast off their skins like snakes, and so he worked at it and was able to cast off his dragon skin, but as he approached the well, he realized he was still a dragon. So he tried again and got skin off again and went back. He was still a dragon. He tried a third time, still a dragon. Eustace described later to Edmund what happened next. Then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone, and then I saw why I had, why I had turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes, and then suddenly I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Why not? Well, there are the clothes for one thing, and you have been, well, undragoned for another. What do you think it was then, asked Eustace. 
I think you've seen Aslan, said Edmund. But who is Aslan? Do you know him? Well, he knows me, said Edmund. He is the great lion, the son of the emperor beyond the sea, who saved me and saved Narnia. Lewis writes, It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. An appalling loneliness. Separation. Unable to enjoy fellowship. Relationship. In real life, sin does that to us. That really happens. Relationships really get destroyed and separated by our sin. And far, far worse than separation from fellow human beings is separation from God. Infinitely worse. And the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then it says the wages of sin is death. Death is separation. Physical death is called death because it's when our soul spirit separates from our body. There's eternal death that awaits after judgment and there's spiritual death. Ephesians 2 describes living, physically living human beings dead in sins and trespasses. That's how we all start out. It began the moment Adam with Eve ate of that fruit God said not to eat. And the human race fell. And sin separates us from God. Have you, have you felt that appalling loneliness from God? that separation that sin causes? Have you realized you sin against the Lord? Sinful actions, sinful thoughts, sinful words, sinful attitudes of the heart? Have you recognized that your sin offends God and His infinite holiness and justice? Have you come to the end of yourself realizing you cannot make yourself right with God? You cannot. You cannot undragon yourself. If you're a born-again believer, you've felt these things. Maybe you didn't use these words to describe them, but you felt them. I felt them. It's part of God drawing us to salvation. We cannot be saved till we see we need to be saved. We need the Savior, the Redeemer, the Christ. If you have not, ask the Lord. Ask the Lord to show you This separation and the only way to be reconciled through Christ. These are pictured in the Old Testament worship that God had directed for his people in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And that picture, that that worship is the background for our passage this morning. So imagine, imagine for a moment You've come to worship in ancient Israel. That's the good news. God in his sovereign grace did make a way for them to worship. But with limits. You you come to the temple and you can only go so far in. In fact, for most of us as Gentiles, we could only go into the very outer court. Jews could go further, but still limits. Only so close 
to the presence of God. God had chosen, God's omnipresent, but he had chosen to manifest his presence in the midst of his people, in the tabernacle, and then in the temple, in what was called the Holy of Holies, the inner chamber that was partitioned off by a a curtain, a veil. So as you worship, all your actions must be mediated by a priest, a priest who also could not enter that Holy of Holies, except once a year, and only one person, one exception. When you came to the temple, you had to come with an animal sacrifice for each sin. You'd, you'd identify with that animal. It would become your substitute. The, the priest would slay the animal. Now, this sacrifice for sin could only be done for accidental sins or mistakes or errors, willful rebellion against known commands. You stood guilty. Your only hope, your best hope, lay in that once-a-year event, the Day of Atonement. On that day and only that day, the high priest and only the high priest entered the Holy of Holies with sacrificial blood to make atonement for his own sin and for the sins of the people for the year. What makes, what makes this so difficult to, be, to have so many separations, so many layers, such difficulty is we were created to have intimate fellowship with the Lord. Adam and Eve had it in the garden. And to serve him in that close fellowship, but sin messed it all up. Thank the Lord, Christ sets it right. These, our passage today speaks to these, these glorious truths, and it's a key passage in this letter to the Hebrews. Up to this point, it's been it's a common pattern in New Testament letters The first part is teaching doctrine, primarily. There's some exhortations mixed in. And then the latter part is exhortation, maybe a little teaching mixed in. And that same pattern is here in Hebrews. So, so far it's been the teaching. This is the transition passage into the application. And so it summarizes the great teaching, and then it foretastes, foreshadows the rest of the book of application. And what we'll see is that as believers in Christ, we're called to and get to enjoy assured fellowship and service with the Lord. It's going to speak of how how that can possibly happen, given our sin and our separation from him. And then it'll tell us to enjoy it by drawing near in faith, holding fast our confession of hope, and provoking one another to love and good actions. So let's dive in. First point. Enjoy assured fellowship and service with the Lord because we have been given access to this fellowship by Christ and his saving work. Look at verse 19 again. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. The first word in verse 19 in the Greek is translated here in the New American Standard, since we have. It's, it's a verb that carries the idea of possessing, of holding, of having something. It's in a form that makes it not the main verb. It's a verb that depends on a verb coming later in verse 22, draw near. And the relationship it has there is it's laying, it's laying the ground, the basis upon which we draw near. We can and should draw near to the Lord. And so it can be translated with because or since, as here in the New American Standard. By being put first, it's emphasized. 
He's starting out this section with what we have as believers. And he's going to mention two, two things that we have. And what we have here in these three verses should motivate us and give us the ability and should drive us to follow the commands that, that come next or the exhortations that we should draw near. And then also verse 23, hold fast. And then verse 24, consider how to provoke to love and good works. So first, what do we have? Verse 19 says simply, we have confidence, boldness, assurance to enter the holy place. The holy place is shorthand for that inner chamber we just spoke of, the holy of holies. There in the tabernacle, then the temple, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That box that God had them build, they put the Ten Commandments in there, Aaron's bod that, uh, rod that budded, and some of the manna. And then it had a golden lid, and on that lid were golden cherubim with their wings together, and that was called the mercy seat. And it was behind a veil that separated it from the rest of the temple. Chapter 9, verse 3 here of Hebrews speaks of that literal, physical, that ceremonial reality. And then you get to verse 24 of chapter 9, and actually I want us to look at that one. It moves to the spiritual holy of holies in heaven. For Christ, it says, chapter 9, verse 24, did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So what's being spoken of here is that we have, we've been given confidence, we have it as believers, to enter the very holy presence of God. Let, let that sink in for a minute. All that separation we began with is real. Our sin completely, eternally, spiritually separates us from God in His holiness. And now we're being told as believers we have confidence to enter the holy presence of God. This is, this is amazing. It's, it's ultimately, yes, fulfilled in heaven. When we go to heaven, it'll be the ultimate fulfillment of that. But it begins here. We can begin to have fellowship with the Lord here. We can do so individually. In, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says, as believers, our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So we, by ourselves with God, can enter into his holy presence because of, of Jesus, as we'll see in a minute. We, we've, we have that as believers that confidence to enter that presence, to worship him, to fellowship with him, to serve him. But not only individually, Ephesians 2, 20 and 22 describe how as believers we're brought together into the body of Christ and are a temple. We're made into a temple of God. So when we gather, when we gather as a church, we, can, we have the confidence to enter the holy presence of of Almighty God. Incredible. This is incredible news that we would be restored. And if we've been saved for a while, we should, we should not let ourselves take it for granted. We should not grow less amazed. We should, be, we should remain amazed that we get to pray to God and talk to Him, that we get to open His Word and hear from Him in it, that we get to gather together and enter his presence and sing praise to him. And we can sing praise on our own to him and worship him and serve him. We should be amazed at that and never, ever get over it. Even the high priest couldn't do this. But 
we get to in Christ. So how do we get to do this? Verse 19 goes on, by the blood of Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful summary? This is, I encourage you, go and read through Hebrews. A lot is said about the blood of Jesus. A lot is said of his saving work and how he, but what a beautiful summary of it. Here and then, and then on into verse 22 but, as well, but the blood of Jesus. That's how it happens. And to understand this more clearly, we do look back to the rest of the book. Therefore, the first word in the New American is therefore. It always points us back. Because it's drawing a conclusion from something before, or it's carrying the argument further. It's, bu- it's building on something already said. And so we've got to go back and look at that. And it is the whole book in, in, in many ways, but especially some of chapter 9 and then the earlier part of chapter 10. So just to highlight a little bit, in chapter 9, verse 11, it says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Then chapter 10 begins, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. By the way, now that Christ has once for all been the sacrifice, that's why we don't sacrifice anymore. Let's go on. Verse 10 of chapter 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The animal sacrifices could not take away sins. They could not cleanse they could not make pure the one coming to worship only jesus only jesus's perfect sacrifice of himself once for all takes away sins only his blood can wash someone clean in fact god honored the old testament sacrifices only on the basis of christ coming in the future the, the sacrifices themselves did not take care of anything. It was the, the, those who were true believers in the Old Testament were forgiven. They were cleansed. They were made right with God. They're in heaven now. They'll be part of the throng around the throne of Christ in the future. But the only reason is they had faith in God and what he gave them to do on faith that the Redeemer was coming, that that once-for-all sacrifice would later happen, and it did. Verse 20 goes on to explain things further here in in chapter 10. It says, By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So we enter the holy place by a new and, and living way. The word translated new actually means freshly slain, referring to a sacrifice. So you couldn't bring 
an animal already dead as your sacrifice. It had, it had to be freshly slain as that sacrifice. And Christ is that freshly slain sacrifice that's sufficient for all who believe in him. Where the sins of every person of all time who believes on him is, is taken care of, the wrath of God for the satisfied. Christ accomplished that as this new way. Christ fulfills the law that our failure to keep separates us from God. Christ's blood cleanses and forgives our sins that keep us from the Lord. Christ's blood satisfies God's wrath. Charles Spurgeon preached, let us never try to pray without Christ. Never try to sing without Christ. Never try to preach without Christ. Let us perform no holy function or attempt to have fellowship with God in any shape or, or way except through that rent which he has made in the veil by his flesh sanctified for us and offered upon the cross on our behalf. He's the new way and he's the living way. He was raised from the dead by the power of God. He's the new and living way to God and it says through the veil... That is his flesh. We find here quite a picture of Jesus and what he did for us. We've already described the tabernacle temple, the Holy of Holies, the veil is what separated it from the rest of the temple. And that can be viewed positively as the point of connection between God's presence, manifested presence, and his people. But even that, as we've said, was a separating point of connection. There wasn't, there wasn't this intimate fellowship. And when Jesus died on the cross, when his flesh was rent on the cross for sinners to provide access to God, at that very time, as Matthew 27 and Mark 15 and Luke 23 describe, shouting the significance of this, the veil in the temple ripped from top to bottom. The way was opened so that every believer in Christ now has the way into the very presence of God opened through what Christ has done. We have confidence to enter. We possess it if we are in Christ. Now, it's not self-confidence. This isn't a, a self-help passage. It's not a positive thinking confidence. It's not a, uh, I'm an optimist, the glass is half full confidence. It's a very specific confidence. We have to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way. So, some of you, some of you may be in a place where you're struggling with some doubts. And you hear all this about confidence to enter, and a question rises in your mind. I've been there in the past. And the question is probably something like this. Does this mean that if we ever don't feel confident or we ever have doubts, we're not saved? I don't think it, it means that. Now, whether we doubt or not, it's wise to always be reviewing the gospel. And to make sure, do I understand the gospel clearly as God gives it in his word? Have I repented of my sin? Have I trusted Christ and his saving work alone to save me? Have I, am I in the faith? It's always wise to do that. But this, the state of the believers, you read through the New Testament, should be a state of assurance. And so if you're wrestling with that, this passage should be an encouragement, not a discouragement. 
And here's what I, here's what I mean. We, we are not saved by confidence. We're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his saving work. We're given confidence as part of that salvation. This, the statement here is not that we have a feeling of confidence to enter. It's that we have the confidence to enter. It's ours if we're in Christ, and we should exercise it, whether we feel it or not. And so if you're, if you're struggling that way, seek the Lord. Exercise it. Enter into the holy presence of God and call out to him and seek to hear from him in his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If, it, if, if you're not saved, God could save you through that very thing. And if you're saved, that's how you'll find assurance. Don't give up till you have the assurance. Because the worst thing is if, I have doubts, but I don't really care. That's what should alarm you. If you don't care about it, but if you care, just keep seeking the Lord till he grants the assurance because it belongs to you as a believer in Christ. In fact, the sub-theme of this passage is assurance. We have the confidence to enter here in verse 19. Verse 22, we'll see in full assurance of faith. In verse 23, without wavering, and he who promised is faithful. And then verse 25, we're encouraging one another. It's, it's a passage that has a sub-theme of we should have assurance in our faith in our great Savior. So what do we have? We have confidence to enter by Christ's saving work. And secondly, we have Christ. He's our great priest. Look at verse 21. And since we have, and have is actually only stated once, right at the beginning, the, the verb have. Having this, we have this confidence to enter, and now in verse 21, a great priest over the house of God. We have Christ himself. And great priest is another term, like in Leviticus 21.10, for high priest. Jesus is described earlier in this epistle as our high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Aaron. It's the higher order. In fact, this book's about how great Christ is. He's greater than everyone and everything else. He's greater than Moses as, as prophet. Moses was great, but he was great as a servant. Christ is great as the son. He's greater than the angels. He's greater in his Melchizedekian priesthood than Aaron in his. We have this great priest. He's the advocate we have. He's the one interceding for us, it describes. He's the one who mediates the new covenant. He supplies every spiritual need. He's our great high priest. Just a, a couple of highlights. Chapter 7, verse 24. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. To save forever those who draw near to him. And then chapter 8 begins, now the main point, that should draw our attention, now the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. We have the right of entering the holy place with confidence and with that comes responsibility. Since we have this, and since we have this great high priest, there are three exhortations the writer gives us. Saying, let us, and he's, he's saying, join me in this. Let us do these things in light of what we have been given. First, 
Let's draw near. By drawing near in him assured faith that transforms us. Verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Exercise this great privilege. Enter in. Come into God's presence. To not do that is, is to disdain His grace. It's amazing what He's given us, and when we ignore it, it's, it's trampling on His grace. So draw near. Let's draw near. Let's, let's worship and fellowship with our God. And it says, draw near with a sincere heart, a heart marked by truth and genuineness. Not perfect. We won't be perfect until, in that sense until glory, when we're made like Christ, 1 John 3 describes. But even now, once we've come to faith in Christ, he's forgiven us. He's cleansing us. He's faithful in that process. And so we have a sincere heart and come in that way. We draw near. And in full assurance of faith, we have no reason to doubt the faithful one in whom we've placed our trust. Draw near with assurance that is grounded on the effectiveness of Jesus' saving work and of who Jesus is. John MacArthur, in his commentary, shares a story about the missionary John Payton. He was in the New Hebrides. Among other tasks, he was seeking to translate the New Testament for the people there. And they did not have a word for faith. And so as he was trying to figure that out, uh, he had a gentleman working at his home. He finished what he was doing. He came in tired, wanting some rest. There was a large chair there. Uh, and he just came in and he flopped down on the chair. And Peyton asked him, what, what do you call that? What do you, what do you, what's, the, what's the word for what you just did? And he told him the word. And that's the word Peyton decided to use to translate faith because the man recognized I, I need rest he recognized that chair can provide the rest and then he trusted himself to it all of his weight all, all, the, the only way he was going to find rest was putting himself on that chair fully and he did that's how we come to Christ in saving faith and that's how we live in Christ we live day by day in that faith, trusting ourselves to our great Savior. And it says in full assurance of faith. That full assurance is found in Jesus. It's not found in us. It's found in the object of our faith. The greatness of, of faith, why faith saves, is because it's in Jesus. It's not because I have enough faith, I have a strong faith, I have a large faith, now, the Bible speaks of our small faith and, and our weakness of our faith, and he needs to help us in our, in our faith. And the, the strength, the full assurance is found in Christ and our faith being in him. So look to Jesus for that full assurance. Verse 22 goes on, that we enter God's presence having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. These phrases remind us of the cleansing requirements of the priests in the Old Testament. Exodus 29, for instance, speaks of Aaron and his sons in the doorway of the tent of meeting washed with water. 
In Leviticus 16, in describing the Day of Atonement, speaks of the high priest having his body bathed in water and then putting on the high priestly garments before he enters in that one time of the year into the Holy of Holies. This, this ceremonial practices that, that I think the reference, the background here, the picture being described here, is later adopted in prophecy in Ezekiel 36 of a future spiritual cleansing. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. So we come here to, to Hebrews 10.22 and sprinkled and washed refer to something that's already happened. It's been completed and has ongoing effect, ongoing results. Christ sprinkled and washed us as believers. He's done it. It's, it's completed. And we enjoy the ongoing benefit of that, which includes entering in and entering in to the holy presence of God, making us holy. So it's complete in the sense that once Christ has saved us, it is certain we will one day be in glory, perfected. It's completed in the sense that we have initial sanctification. The moment we come to faith in the Lord, our position is in Christ, and He is perfect, and so our standing with God is perfect, and that's how we can enter. And then it begins the process in this life of how we're actually living day by day now, matching more and more that reality that Christ completed for us. And that's an important aspect of, of our worship, of our fellowship with the Lord, is that we should be growing in our holiness, in purity, in, in, in less and less sin, more and more righteousness by His grace and His power. He, he, and He does that. When Christ saves us, He begins transforming us. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone, but that faith is not alone. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it's so clear. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves it's a gift from God not by works as anyone should boast the very next verse says we're his workmanship created to walk in good works so if we profess faith but we live in ongoing unrepentant sin there's a problem we should repent confess our sins to the Lord 1 John 1 9 he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins but if we refuse to do that if we're happy to just stay in unrepentant sin, we should have no confidence that we actually have ever been saved, and those around us shouldn't, and should lovingly seek after us to repent, get right with the Lord, because that doesn't go together. Now, the enemy can, can try to make us misunderstand things like this. In one direction, he can make us think we have to make ourselves good enough for the Lord. That's not what I'm saying, because we can't. We have no chance, not even close. He does it all to save us. Or our, our wrong thinking can go in the direction of, well, since we're saved by grace, how, how I live doesn't matter. No, that's false. How, how can we look at what we've been given, we've just described here in these verses, and not care how we live following our Lord? It doesn't go together. And so don't get led astray into false thinking. Let him sanctify us as we follow him and fellowship with him. And let's keep moving. Let's go on to our third point this morning. Enjoy assured fellowship and service with the Lord by holding fast. Holding fast the confession of our hope that testifies to others. Look at verse 23. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So to understand this better, what, how do we define the confession of our hope? First of all, hope. Biblical hope, as you probably can remember, is it's not how we tend to use the word hope today. Wishful thinking. I hope such and such happens. I hope. We tend to use it as wish. That's not the biblical term hope. The biblical term hope is confident expectation of something that's certain it's just future. That's biblical hope. And the confession is, is, we do use that word the same way. It's affirming, it's confessing, it's professing that we believe these promises to be true. And so we hope. We have confidence that it's just future because we know God keeps every one of his promises. In fact, in Hebrews 6, God swears by himself because there's no one greater. He swears by himself in order to show his people the absolute certainty of his promise. And as it says here, he who promises is faithful. So we can hold tightly, fastly to God's promises and not waver, not turn back and then away and then back and then away. We can stay firm because he who promised is faithful. We can know he'll keep that promise without a doubt. Uh, MacArthur shares of a, of a father who, this is, before, this is a while back because it was before cell phones, left his young son on a street corner. He said, I've got to run this errand. I'll be back to get you. His car broke down. It took five hours to get back to that corner. He was worried for his son. He was worried his son would be scared, uh, figuring he would never return for him. And he gets there, and as he's coming up, he sees his son just looking in the dime store window. He's kind of rocking back and forth. And he runs up and he hugs him and kisses him and apologizes. I'm so sorry. And he says, weren't you scared? Were you worried? Were you thinking I was never coming back? He said, no, Dad, I knew you were coming back as you said you would. That's how we should be with the Lord. If he's made a promise, we should have no worries. God keeps every promise. And so hold fast. Hold fast no matter what's going on. This is... This is the perseverance of the saints we talk about. Because God's faithful, we can hold fast to him. Others may challenge our beliefs. Hold fast. Others may mock us or even persecute us. Hold fast. We may suffer trials and tragedies. In fact, the Bible says we will to some extent, but hold fast. No matter what, Temptations come, discouragements come, hold fast. Hayward referenced earlier, there's a lot going on in our country right now. And we can hold fast in that. Um, the death of George Floyd was horrific. I don't know if I can remember a time our entire country was united in a response to something as we are to that. But now in the, in, some, in the days since, now we've got riots in cities. And I was alive then, but I was too young to remember 1968, but it's sounding like what I've studied in history about 1968. And as Christians, how do, we, how do we respond? How do we hold fast in the midst of that? It's too fresh, it's too soon, and I've, I've had my own sermon working on in this passage, but 
I think it is apropos to just make a few comments to, to kind of send us in a direction of how do we, do we handle things that come up and current events and what's going on around us. And one would be think biblically about things, always. Always when we're trying to discern what's happening and why is it happening and how should I respond, how should I not respond, is go to the Word of God. Lord, what did you tell us here that will guide me in what's true and what's not, and what to do and what not to do and so forth? Bring every thought captive to Christ, as it says in 2 Corinthians. A second thought comes to mind of, uh, related to all this is because George Floyd was black and because the officer that killed him was white, the issue of race has been brought up again. What about racism? Well, for us as Christians, there shouldn't be any, period. In fact, we'd have a lot less race, racism troubles in our society if the church through the years had been more faithful to be biblical. God created mankind in Adam and Eve, and we're all their descendants. So really, there's one race, Adam's race all in the image of God, all equally in the image of God. Adam fell in sin, and we all fell with him in sin. We're all equally sinners. And all who believe in Christ are saved equally in Christ. In fact, around the throne of heaven, it says in Revelation, will be some from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, just like in the song we sang. That's a promise. And he who promised is faithful. So we may have to deal with the ugliness of the sin of racism and the ugliness of wrong reactions to it and the ugliness of murder and all of that in this life, but we have the promise that one day it's all going to be set right by King Jesus. And we can hold fast because of that. And that's a third thought is murder is evil. It's wrong. Human life is sacred. A fourth thought, vengeance is the Lord's, Romans 12. In Romans 13, one of the ways he uses in this life for justice is human government. Chauvin was arrested. He's charged with murder. Let the government process happen. Pray that it happens justly. The protests, where they are legitimately just protests, are understandable. We should agree with them. This is horrible injustice. It's murder, and, it's, and worse, it's murder by an authority. That makes it worse. That makes it more unjust. But rioting is not protesting. Rioting is sin itself. If you're stealing, you're breaking things, you're burning things, that's wrong. Exploiting the poor and vulnerable is a sin. Let me just suggest a couple of verses. Psalm 10, verse 2. In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. 
there are, there's a lot of evidence that a lot of outsiders are coming into these cities. And creating the rioting for their own agendas. That's wicked. That's taking advantage of the afflicted. These are poor neighborhoods. These are neighborhoods that are being destroyed. Livelihoods destroyed, businesses destroyed, homes destroyed, lives threatened. That's wicked to those people. And in the name of supporting those people in those neighborhoods, to destroy those neighborhoods is wicked. And Proverbs 29, 7 and 8. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. Do I have this right? Oops, that's Psalm. Proverbs 29. The righteous is concerned for the rights of the poor. The wicked does not understand such concern. Scorners set a city aflame, but wise men turn away anger. Verse 11, a fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. And then finally, trust the Lord. Pray. Don't let... Don't let concern about that horrific murder lead you to support other sin. Don't let concern about the sin of rioting cause you to not be concerned about that horrific murder. Try to think in, in all of it biblically, in all of it stay biblical. Don't get caught up in, in any party think, group think, other than following the Word of God with those who follow the Word of God. Enough, enough on that. Like I said, it's so fresh, it's hard to speak too specifically, but we, 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 we want to react as believers. We want to pray, and we want to rest in our great God and Savior who keeps every promise. He will set right the injustices. He will set right the injustices. We don't always know the whens, the hows, how long it'll take, but he will. Trust Christ. And be the part we can in it. Do, do, do the right thing along the way, trusting him. He's faithful. And he's coming back. Among his promises is he's coming back. And believers will be perfected. And we will go to heaven. And we will reign with Christ. And there will be a new heaven. And there will be a new earth. Hold firm. Hold on. Hold fast. And... and the confession of our hope. We have hope. Christians shouldn't be in despair about anything that's happening at, at large or in our own lives. Now, the Bible speaks to having hope and not despairing because we, we get tempted with that. It's difficult and we're weak and we're sinners and that can happen. But don't stay there. Look to Christ the one who promises is faithful. And as we hope and the world looks at us hoping and we're confessing our hope in Christ and all he has done to save us, that's a great witness. So that others around us can realize what I feel deep inside, that I'm not right, that there's a God I answer to and I'm not right with him, is correct, but also there's hope. There's an answer. There's a savior. There's a redeemer. There's a redeemer. 
and they may come to Christ and know the joy of his salvation and have this entrance into his presence and have this blessed hope that he will set it all right. Finally, a fourth point. Enjoy assured fellowship and service with the Lord by intentionally provoking one another to love and good actions that prepare for Christ's return. Sorry on your notes, the grammatical inconsistency. I didn't catch it before I sent them in for print. But will prepare us for Christ's return. Look at verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. These, these three exhortations build on each other. It's hard to draw near with confidence if we fail to hold tight to the confession of our hope. And it's hard to hold tight if we don't encourage each other. And it's hard to worship the Lord alone if we don't worship together. And it's hard to encourage and support each other if we don't spend time alone with the Lord and, and so on. And this third responsibility is to intentionally provoke one another to love and good works. It says, let us consider. That's intentional effort. Figure out how can we do this. Do what? Provoke or stimulate here the word is how to stimulate one another. It's a strong Greek word. It's often used in negative context, a stirring up of anger. It's used of Paul when he saw the idols in Athens and his spirit was being provoked within him. It communicates a stirring up, provoking of strong passion that's going to lead to action. Here it's used positively for stirring up love and good actions. Jesus said in John 13, they'll know we're his disciples by our love for one another. We, we need to help each other, push each other, stir each other, provoke each other to that love, to living out that love. Uh, and we just mentioned earlier, Ephesians 2.10, we're to walk in the good works he has planned for us. Help each other to do that. And it says that we should take time to consider how to help each other in this way. But he didn't leave us hanging. He gets us started. And he mentions two ways specifically. First, by not forsaking the assembling together as is the habit of some. Community is powerful. It's important. It's needed. It's essential. And the, the recent experience we've been having with this coronavirus stay-at-home orders has just affirmed that. Many of you express that. I know I feel that. It, it's all the obstacles that creates to community affirm how important community is. As we discussed Wednesday night, the Bible emphasizes community. He created us in his image and God is one in essence, three in person. That's community. He created us as man and woman, Adam and Eve, married. That's community. He calls the church specifically to community. In Acts 2, when the church was founded, they devoted themselves, among other things, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. In just a few minutes, we're going to break bread together, the Lord's Supper. There's a community aspect to that. It's a command given for us to do when we gather together. And here in Hebrews 10, do not forsake assembling together. That implies a positive. We're, we're to assemble together. God created the church to be a community, to encourage each other. So we need to gather to worship, for teaching, for accountability, encouragement, uplifting ministries. And, and should be aware of letting other things come in and stop us and, and, and lead us to start forsaking that assembling together. Whether it's a bad habit or weariness or feeling like I, could don't, I don't need other believers and they don't need me, we, we, we need one another, the Bible says. 
fear of government authority. There are many places in the world throughout history and today, aside from trying to stop a virus, where Christians are not allowed to gather, but we should still gather. Now, I believe we made the right decision for not gathering for a while with all that we knew and trying to stop the spread of, of corona. But we need to gather. I think we're right now, we're right as well now, getting back to gathering together. The care that's needed, but gather. Do, do what God here is telling us to do. Now, it's not saying that a believer has to be in the church building every time the church building doors are open. But this verse and many others, such as Ephesians 4, each part doing its part to build the body up in love. I, many passages, including this one, point to a believer should be an active, committed part of a Christ-centered biblical congregation. If, if you're a believer, if you profess faith in Christ and you're not, find a Bible-believing, Christ-centered church, join it, and be actively involved. And if, if you're looking for one, we'd love to talk to you about it. Maybe this is the one. We'd love to have you here at Riverbend. But it, it's, that's part of what God expects for us as Christians. We should not neglect it. Now, there are situations where someone may not be able to attend for a while. If you're sick with something that is contagious, don't, don't gather with us till you're well and then come back. It may be just your health in general. You're too weak. You're, you're in a situation where now you're homebound. You're not forsaking the assembling. You're not able to. And, and just be as connected as you can. Pray for us. Live, watch the live stream and so on. Right now, there's some who have high risk factors. So even though we're starting to regather, you need to wait a little longer. We understand that. But for most believers, we should gather. We should get together. It's a priority. And it's not just a we should, it's a duty. It's a blessing. It's a privilege. We get to gather together. And then the second way is when we do, encourage one another. In fact, there are many one another's in the Bible that getting together helps us to accomplish those with each other, but certainly includes encouraging. The most encouraging people in the world should be Christians. And it's sad when that's not the case. Because we, what we've been given, we should be able to, to then encourage one another. Spur, Spurgeon preached about the more we draw near to the Lord, the more we will bless others around us and encourage fellow believers around us. And so en encourage each other through words, the word of God to each other, praying with each other, praying for each other, just getting to know each other, living the Christian life together. It's part of what discipleship is. And it's not only the formal opportunities, it's just informally. We live the Christian life together and we help each other in it. But then also, we have formal opportunities. Take advantage of those. Discipleship training, one and two start in the fall. Look into that. It's a great opportunity in a small group setting to encourage one another in growth. Or one-on-one, -on -one, we have partners where one-on-one -on -one you can you can pursue that, that kind of growth. And just this, worship services, BFG is starting next week, and so on. Let's encourage one another in our walk with the Lord. And it says, finally, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day is the day of the Lord. It's Christ's return. So live as if it's the end times. It, and, and biblically, it is. We don't know how long the end times will be, but it is. 
work hard to make the bride of Christ ready for the coming of her bridegroom. So praise God for the gift of confidence to enter and of Christ himself. We can enter God's presence. And because of that, on the basis of that, draw near to him. Hold fast the confession of our hope. And let's provoke one another to love and good actions. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time this morning. We do ask you, Lord, to please work in us to draw near to you, to fellowship with you, to help each other in that. And Lord, help us to testify of the hope to others around us that when things get difficult and crazy and even tragic and unjust that we can be praying, we can hold steady to you, we can point others to you, And Lord, we pray they will find you by your grace. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.